Welcome everyone to the Metal Hammer podcast episode 113. I'm Mo and I'm joined by Metal Hammer deputy editor Eleanor Goodman. How are you doing now? I'm good thanks. How are you? I am very good thank you. I liked how you managed to keep that in the exact same tone and cadence as the first take. <laughs> Flawless work. Uh, I'm also joined by Metal Hammer contributor Mr Stephen Hill. How are you doing Steve? Uh, a bit down, actually, mate. Uh, oh, you didn't say that last time. No, I didn't. Last time I went, yeah. And I thought, fuck it. I'm going to be exactly the opposite this time. My first run of the intro went so badly that I upset Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fine. Thank you, mate. I'm good. Good. I'm glad. Uh, we're excited this week. We've got a brand new issue of Metal Hammer out on the shelves right now. It's got Lamb of God on the cover. Uh, it's an awesome interview conducted by our writer, Kim Kelly, who went over to Richmond, Virginia a few weeks back. Um, obviously, it was a few weeks back because we can't go anywhere now. Uh, she got an exclusive interview with Randy Blythe about the new Lamb of God album, their first album of original material in five years, which is just crazy. We find out why it took them so long, what's uh, bugging Randy at the moment, what he's happy about, what he's angry about. A man full of opinions as always, um, and a fascinating read that uh, I strongly, strongly suggest you guys check out. Um, also in the new issue, we have a countdown of the 50 greatest metal bands ever as voted for by you, you guys out there, the Metal Hammer readers. Uh, I'm talking Metallica, Maiden, Slipknot, System of a Down, Lamb of God, they're all in there. A few Stuck surprising Mojo. entries as well. You what? Stuck Mojo. Stuck Mojo. I think they. I think they just came in at fifty-one. Unfortunately. Right. Yeah. yeah okay. uh, <laughs> Leverage Ward alone. He's a wicked bloke. Um, uh, so yeah, that's all in there. There are a few surprising entries. Not Stuck Mojo, but there are some. Uh, we also celebrate the amazing career and legacy of Ronnie James Dio, whose death was ten years ago next month. If you can believe that. Uh, we go and hang out with Ice Tear is house. And um, there's loads of great stuff in there. It's out now. If you're out doing your essential shop for the week or the month or whatever you're doing and you happen to go past the magazine stand and fancy picking something up to pass the time, we uh, very much appreciate it. Or, of course, you can order issues straight to your door at uh, tinyurl.com slash buyhammer. Um, and if you go over to the My Favourite Magazine's website, you can also find out how to get Metal Hammer delivered straight to your device as well. So your iPad, your laptop wherever you want to read it on basically um we very much appreciate your support in this crazy old time that we are in uh and speaking of which there's been more good stuff happening i know it's easy to get into kind of a negative state of mind with the way everything's going but the metal scene continues to astound and amaze us with all this cool shit that's going on um l you watched the papa roach live stream they did didn't you to celebrate 20 years of infest yeah, it was crazy. They did it all kinds of platforms like Twitch, YouTube, etc. And I thought it was just going to be sort of a little chat between them, but it was over three hours long. It was insane. That's intense. It was very intense. It was all the band members, uh, the original drummer who played on Infest, and they had a ton of special guests as well. So they had people like coming in, obviously, from their own homes. Obviously, everyone was at home. They had Chino from Deftones, Head from Corn. Phoenix from Lincoln Park, Sinister Gates, Jason Butler, and they just kind of had a chat. Awesome. Really. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, yeah, they had all these special guests. So they had like those people on like live in the live stream, um, having a chat, and then they had some tributes from other musicians who'd recorded them at home and sent them in as well, um, like Spencer from Ice Nine Kills and stuff. But yeah, they just kind of all were talking about the early days and revealing stories from the past and what it was like to get together to record on that first record 
And yeah, I learned some interesting stuff I didn't know. Did you guys know that Dead Cell was about the Columbine shootings? Uh, I did, but only specifically because that's my favourite Papa Roach song. And so I've looked up it quite a lot. But that's a good good Yeah, I mean, I probably should have known it because it's one of my favourite records. But at the time, I probably didn't even really know much about Columbine, to be honest. So that was really interesting. And there was sort of tour story debauchery stuff as well. Like Jacoby said when they were touring with Korn that someone left a plastic bag of shit on his chest one time. He just woke up and he had some shit on him. Well, we've, we've all had that, haven't we? Who hasn't got a bag of shit on their chest? <laughs> to me, that, that sounds better than listening to Infest by Papa Roach. Oh, Steve. What? What is wrong with you? Steve. Literally, what is wrong with you? You don't like Infest? No, no, no. That's not me, is it? I'm, well, what? I know, but there's definitely similar albums out there which you would at least normally give credit where it's you and all the rest of it. I would have, I would have thought Infest would be one that you'd be like, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Uh, do you know what? I'm not sure that I can remember the last time I listened to that album in full. I love that album. Put it on Dead Cell, cool. mate. Put on Dead Cell. That is an I like the one, nigger. what's the, there's no money. I like that Between one. Angels and Insects. And insects. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. one's about uh, material possessions and how they're not really worth anything. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, didn't think about that when you slagged them off, did you? <laughs> I didn't know. No, no that, like, I didn't. That album was massive for me. Like, seriously, that album together with Hybrid Theory and Chocolate Starfish. I, I loved that record. I went to see them tour it and I got this t-shirt, which I still have, it's a bit small now, but it's like got um, red glittery cockroaches on it. So it did bring back a lot of memories for me, like, you know, what it was like to hear that record and go and see them in the early days. They had a lot of footage from the past as well. They had some of the very early gigs they showed. Um, so it was really funny, you know, they're all laughing at what they used to look like 20 years ago. They've aged really well, except, you know, they obviously look like kids on some of the first videos. They're sort of like, yeah. you know, you can see it in their faces. The innocence. <laughs> a massive record. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. It, I, it wasn't quite as big an album for me in terms of getting into metal and stuff because it, it actually came out a bit before Chocolate Starfish and Hybrid Theory. So I kind of came to it a bit later, if anything. But um, like just song for song, it's so good. I remember when they played it in full at the roundhouse a few years back and it was just like ridiculous almost the greatest hits album isn't it that record that's um, my dad's fault actually he heard last resort on the radio and he was like i think you might like this and then i just got really obsessed with it amazing <laughs> and your dad was right <laughs> um other cool stuff happening Corey taylor is auctioning a load of guitars uh 13 of them in fact to raise money for covid19 charities the auctions are on eBay and running until next Thursday. So if you've got what I imagine might be quite a bit of money and you fancy paying it towards a good cause, but also bagging yourself on a Corey Taylor's guitars, uh, go over to eBay and check that out. Um, in other news, huge piece of I'd like one of Corey Taylor's guitars. Well, that would I'd, be good, man. Go on then. Well, what's, what's stopping you? <laughs> I don't know. The lack of money, probably. But I might thousand pounds. Yeah. I had a little look on eBay actually, and they do look very cool, but they're up at the moment about $3,000 each. Which right. isn't that bad right now. Like, you can get just normal guitars for that kind of money. So, I guess, that, but I, I somehow suspect that in the next week they might go up a bit. I think so. But it's all for a good cause. So, it's all good here. Yeah, it's uh, awesome who's doing that. Brilliant. I was going to say, Pusa for a teasing new music. Are we excited about that? I feel like you, you two are in a pretty good position to talk about that. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, I, I like Pucifer. 
considering Tool are pretty, I would say, my favourite band, and I really loved that last Perfect Circle record, and I saw Pucifer a couple of times on that tour they did when they brought the wrestling ring over, which I heard you saying, and you weren't that impressed by. I think it's one of the best shows I've ever seen in my entire life. I thought it was absolutely incredible, ingenious, inventive, and um, beguiling. It was a brilliant, brilliant show. And I, uh, I just wanted to kind of put that in there for balance, basically. Um, I don't know what your beef with that show was, really. I think it's really cool because he's well into wrestling and the fact that he has that imagination and wanted to put that together was good. But I just wanted to see him play the songs. I just wanted to sort of have him come on and do them. And it felt really stop-starty. It's like they'd play a few songs, then they'd stop and they'd be like a wrestling match. And then they'd play like some more songs. It felt kind of disjointed. I almost feel like if there was wrestling going on while the songs were happening. I think they were. an accompaniment. I think you're misremembering it a little bit because I do not because they did their support act were the wrestlers. So they had like an hour of wrestling before Pusifer came on and then the the band went into the thing. I think there were a couple of times where things stopped. Anyway, this is just too <laughs> trying to remember a gig that happened four years ago at the moment. So um but essentially yeah, I I we've yeah, got nothing else to review, you might as well go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought the money shot, the last Pusifer record is probably the most um, what's the word? Normal sounding record that they've done because some of their stuff is very odd. Um, I love it though. I love the odd I, stuff yeah. as well as the normal stuff. Yeah, um, it's so interesting, and you can see like if you Google it, you can see like on YouTube and stuff. There's footage of their shows because they only played like one time. And it was the wrestling one, but there's other shows they've done like outdoor shows which are cool, um, and just like some of the rhythms in those songs and the way that they sort of are dancing to them and like moving their bodies because they're, they're so interesting. Um, it's a really inter- interesting vibe and it's really different to all. I'm excited to hear new stuff. Yeah, I just hope he doesn't go straight to Pusifer when we haven't had much in the way of tall live stuff. I mean, you mean I because they've stopped touring because of COVID? Well, yeah, but I mean, if, you know what Maynard's like, he doesn't tend to do two things at once, does he? It's not his fault though, the whole tool thing, when everyone's like, oh, Maynard, give us a new Tool album. He's really prolific. He's been doing his music consistently um, around the wine harvest. So he, in terms of holdups, he's never the one seemingly holding up Tool. It's like he's going to make music anyway. No, no. But what I mean is, is that we're not going to get a Tool tour if he's doing something with Pucifer. And I know we're, right. not, we're not going to get an anyone tour at the moment anyway. So it feels like a bit of a moot point, really. But it is um, a moot point. Yeah, yeah. So I'd rather have a piece of album than Being lazy, Maynard. Get on tour now. <laughs> yeah. He's got plenty of face masks, hasn't he? Surely he can get out there. No problem. Um, yeah. He has got a lot of face masks. Yeah, a lot of luchador masks. So, uh, but yeah, but it would be a shame if uh, we... Because Tool tend to do things in blocks and they edit, everything gets dedicated to this is sort of Tool time. Did you see, just briefly, did you see the video clip, the teaser? It's a man in like a black suit handing a toilet roll to a man in an orange hazmat suit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't really know what they're up to. They're a funny old band, aren't they? But I like that it feels like, it's kind of like Tool, the the silliest parts of Tool being more silly, which is kind of what I think Pucifer are mixed with kind of electronic music or whatever. Like they're, they're, They're good, but they are... They're weird as fuck, basically, aren't they? Yeah, but in in a really good way. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair. 
uh, there's some good music coming out this week, um, so we should probably do the album of the week. We're going to talk about the new album from Havoc. <clears throat> this album's called V, which I guess stands for five, so I believe that means this is their fifth album. If you're Pussifer, it's V is for Vagina. Well, this isn't Pussifer, L. Forget, get over Pussifer. I don't know what your obsession with them is. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, this is a cool band, American thrash band. Uh, one of the kind of real shining lights in the current thrashing, for sure. There's a couple of bands out there. Um, them, Lost Society is another one. There's another one who I've forgotten. I was talking them, I was talking about these bands with you the other day, Steve. I can't remember who the other one is. There's them, Power Society. No, not Power Trip. They're a bit different. I don't know. Anyway, there's a few really good young thrash bands that are playing classic thrash in a way that is um, appealing to a lot of people at the moment. And I feel like Havoc are kind of the front of those. Uh, so yeah, this album's V slash five. It's out on Friday on Century Media. Was giving it a listen just before we started, and it is another very very good classic Bay Area indebted uh, thrash album. Mm. Yeah, well, I really I, I like Havoc a lot. I think you know um, when we were talking about these bands the other day, me and Yuma, one of the things we were saying is that I think because the parameters of what you what you can do if you're going to be considered a thrash metal band um it's quite a tight sonic parameter that you have to stick to rigidly if you're going to be one of those bands and there's not necessarily a lot of room for maneuver in terms of other outside influences that you might bring in so i feel like a lot of the newer thrash bands um they obviously struggle in comparison, as I think anyone would do to the likes of Slayer and Megadeth or an album like Bonded by Blood by Exodus or, you know, the kind of the early creator stuff. That's always going to be the kind of gold standard go-to stuff. And I think a band like Havoc, how much you like them will totally depend on how much you like the sound of thrash metal. Um, it's tough that we've, you know, it was a couple of weeks ago, the New Testament record came out, which I think is excellent. And, um, you know, and a band of that kind of vintage being that good still makes it very, very difficult for a younger band to come along and try and recreate that sound in the modern era and do it well. But I think Havoc are maybe not the best. I mean, I mentioned Power Trip, I think probably are the best. I think Power Tripper is maybe the only band who've ever got close to being as good as... The, the kind of the classic era of thrash metal since that big I feel like Power Trip come from a slightly different vein of thought as well like they come they feel like they come from more from the hardcore scene they've got a kind of a grittier more kind of like chainsaw like like a treatment of their riffs yeah and they just feel a bit more they just feel slightly different whereas guys like Havoc and Lost Society god who's the other one I wish I could remember there's another band that I always reference with these guys they're more kind of like denim and leather thrash fucking metal played like thrash metal was 40 years ago but it still sounds really good <laughs> yeah i think the kind of the what havoc have is a very clean kind of modern production or they did anyway i think this record feels like it's a bit more um it's a little bit rawer because i thought the last one you could one of the things that was always really interesting about havoc is their bassist is brilliant like that you don't often i noticed that a couple of really good few little galloping yeah. bass lines on there you don't often um, think about the bass guitar in thrash metal. I mean, Metallica thought about it so little that Jason Newstead isn't even on and Justice for All, do you know what I mean? So it's not always the thing that, when you think about thrash metal, you usually think about big guitar riffs or kind of 
double kick time drums. You don't often think about the bass, but Havoc, um, the bass plays a really prominent role. And I think they're very good technically, a la Megadeth, but they've got more kind of grit to them. I mean, particularly on the new, I think David Sanchez is the vocalist name and he sounds a lot, he used to have kind of a high pitched sort of yelp. And now he's on this record, he's got much more of a, uh, a stronger bark and I think it suits him um, a bit better personally. Uh, Song-wise, they're not particularly doing anything new, but I think this is a very, very good record. Like, it's a really good record. I particularly think the second half of the record, there's a song um, called Merchant, the last two songs, Merchant of Death and Don't Do It. One's like 90 seconds long, and the other one's like eight and a half minutes long. Um, so you've got 10 minutes of music, and they basically run the gamut of everything within thrash metal in those two songs. Really taut tight short sharp brutal kick in the face and then that more kind of which is um merchants of death into don't do it which is a much more kind of technical tornado thrash kind of labyrinthian mm. progressive take on thrash metal so they're really good at doing all the things that thrash metal do i think how much you love this record will come down to how much you like the sound of thrash metal essentially I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, you know, I think the Testament album was quite a good barometer, actually, because obviously they are literally an OG thrash band. And that album, to me, sound like, especially the way it's produced, just sounds massive and more modern and current. And I, and I would say, and I don't mean this as an insult whatsoever, I actually think this Havoc album sounds even more like a throwback than the New Testament album does. Um, and I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean it's it, it's really capturing that vibe and that sound, whereas Testament sound more like a band who have kind of moved through that and are producing and creating their songs in a slightly different way now. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really fun record. And if you're looking for like just some really great thrash metal, that is as good as it gets uh, right now, which is pretty cool. Elle's put her hand up. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a chance to say anything and I thought we were going to wrap it up. So the bassist is actually a new guy. He's called Brandon Bruce. Um, but that yeah, sounds like a Marvel superhero identity. If <laughs> I heard one. Yeah, I agree. Like it's the bass is really prominent and it really plays a role in it. And it's not in an annoying way. It's, it's kind of, ah, oh, that sounds cool sort of way. Um, and they just really, really, really love thrash. Like you were saying, you know, you can tell they just love it. Old school, proper thrash. But I was, um, there's a lot of stuff on this record. The first track's called Post-Truth Era, which is obviously about kind of the world we live in and fake news and all that. And there's a lot in it about sort of politics and technology. But there was a song title that I didn't understand, so I looked it up and there's a really interesting story behind it. It's called Da Cho, and it's kind of like a tribally sort of intro-y song. And it goes into a song called Phantom Force. And the lyrics are like, shadow demons come for me narrowly escape from the killing fields only to be chased by death which is pretty pretty metal but the story is really crazy um so basically the during the vietnam war the Hmong people had fought a guerrilla war against the government of laos with the backing of the u.s and when they lost that war many of the Hmong people went to america to avoid reprisals and they were scattered across 53 different cities. So they didn't really have a sense of community or anything like that. They were just kind of all over the place. Um, and what happened is 
a lot of these people were dying in their sleep. And in the end, 117 people died in their sleep and all but one of them were healthy. And nobody knew why this was happening. Um, doctors called it sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome. And um, there's this theory that it turns out that uh, physically a lot of them might have had um, a genetic cardiac arrhythmia, which is um, more prevalent in people from Southeast Asia, so like an existing heart condition. But actually, they're probably killed by, by their beliefs in the spirit world because what they believed is if they had nightmares, it was caused by a spirit, which is the spirit, the Da Chao. And um, if you have these nightmares from the spirit, you have to get a shaman in to set things right so that your ancestral spirits will protect you. And because they didn't have access to a shaman or their community, they weren't protected from their nightmares. So they were all really... Um, kind of worked up and very uh, emotionally distraught about not having a community and having all these nightmares. And um, they think it's like the nocebo effect, which is like the opposite of the placebo, where some negative thinking can really affect you. And that they died in their sleep because they had all these intensely negative thoughts about evil spirits visiting them in their sleep that they couldn't fix. Um, and so 117 people died. Wow. <laughs> Quite that a long story. So history by L. <laughs> that was fucking I mean, deep. I didn't know that. <laughs> I went down. I went down a bit of a Google hole. Yeah, I can tell. I mean, people did say that. Uh, I saw people saying on the on the on Twitter about the, the testament uh, review that we did. They appreciated L having actually researched the lyrics because I was just kind of going, "Yeah, this album's great." And then L pointed out that one of the songs was about one of my very favorite horror movies, and I didn't even know. Um, so yeah, that was pretty deep. <laughs> yeah, that, that, song is, that song is three minutes long, and Eleanor's version um, <laughs> of it is twice that. So <laughs> yeah, there's two songs. There's the intro song and then the song. But yeah, basically summarised, uh, people from Laos thought that evil spirits were giving them nightmares. They couldn't get a shaman to get rid of them, so they had evil nightmares and then died in their sleep. Uh, I mean, that is as mad as it gets. Uh, so yeah. Obviously, it's a, uh, just a kind of fun, decent throwback price record, but they've definitely uh, got into some rather unusual lyrical realms as well. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's plenty more stuff on there as well that you can dig out from uh, everything they're singing about. Um, that is V by Havoc. That's out this Friday on Century Media. Um, Steve, do you want to do a super quick shout-out for the Umbra Vito record as well? Because that's out this week, and we were thinking about doing that for the main... Yeah, I do. I mean... Um, so it's a debut album from Umbra Vitae, uh, it's called Shadow of Life, it is featuring former members of Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats, um, the Red Chord, basically if you know where you're... Cowboy. Yeah, Job for Cowboy, basically if you know where your wounds, it, which is Jacob Bannon from Converge's um, kind of post-rock, kind of am more ambient project, more kind of... Um, elegant indie project if you like I mean indie is probably the wrong word but um, but very very good but apparently the, the guys who make up the band Wear Your Wounds because they're all from heavy bands they used to kind of sound check and muck around by playing really really heavy music on tour and Umbra Vita is born out of that um, and it's, so it's basically Jake Bannon from Converge doing death metal which when you say it like that, I mean, I'm... That's a sell by itself, isn't it? It should just say yeah. that on the on yeah. the packaging. <laughs> I'm an absolutely massive, massive fan of Converge. They're one of my favourite bands in the world ever. I love Jacob Bannon. I think he's uh, a proper genius and a, a really, really inspiring character. Um, and this album's 26 minutes long. It is death metal as played by punks, basically. Um, 
I think it's really, really good. It's really good. Uh, it's probably not. I mean, when you say Jake Bannon doing death metal, I would like it to be more death metal because I think when you look at the previous bands that the members have been in, you can kind of, they're not, it's not a million miles away from the type of music they've made. Like when Converge get really, really heavy, that kind of buzzsaw, chainsaw heaviness that Converge do, you know, it's not a million miles away from that strand of hardcore at points that, you know, is hugely inspired by Entombed. But I was really hoping we were going to get a proper, like, down and dirty, stompy, you know, really tar thick, gross, like, death metal record, but with Jacob Bannon front in it. You don't really get that. Um, you do get a kind of an amalgam of sort of like what Death Prison, um, Death Prison, what, what Venom Prison do, that mixture of death metal and sort of proper brutal hardcore. It's a very good record. I think it is a good record. I just wish that we'd got, you know, Jake Bannon fronting something that sounded like a bitchery. That would have been fucking awesome and really, really different from what they're doing. So I'm not going to say this is a bad, it's a bad record. I think it's a, a good record, but I would like to have seen it be taken further in that more extreme metal direction personally. But that seems like a quite a specific criticism of it. It's very mm. good. Fair play. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. Uh, uh, whether you're a death metal fan or whether you're a Jacob Bannon fan, there's definitely a lot to, to get into there. Um, should we get into the, the meat and potatoes of this, <laughs> this podcast? Let's. Steve's rubbing his hands. Oh. I was shaking her head. Shit's about to go down. We're talking Slipknot. It's time for the next edition of the Melt Hammer Podcast Hall of Fame. If you haven't heard us do one of these before, the idea is relatively simple we decide to nominate one album only by a legendary band uh, to go into the imaginary but very very important and prestigious metal hammer podcast hall of fame um, the way we pick the albums to debate over is we put all of them up for voting in the metal hammer readers group over at facebook.com slash metal hammer readers uh, so we put their entire discography up the two most popular albums from that list according to our readers we then debate and then at the end, we vote on which one makes it through to the vital and prestigious, some might say most important, Hall of Fame, which is the Metal Hammer Podcast Hall of Fame. Who would uh, that be? So, so, go on. Who would that be who would say that? Just you, really, isn't it? Just me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just literally just me. Um, but yeah, we've already got um, Antichrist Superstar by Marilyn Manson's in there. It was recently joined by Seven Son of a Seven Son by Iron Maiden. We're doing Slipknot this week um yeah let's just get straight into it i imagine this will be a bit of a meandering conversation we've all been listening to slipknot all week long i've also been working on something else quite slipknotty as has l for an upcoming issue of metal hammer so we are filled to the brim with slipknot chat basically uh but the two albums that we are specifically picking from are slipknot the 1999 self-titled debut and iowa the 2001 follow-up uh, so those are the two albums we're debating. We won't reveal which ones we're specifically picking. Um, where should we start with this? Where, uh, Elle, where were you when you first heard Slipknot and when did these albums both kind of come onto your radar? So I heard about Slipknot really just because there was such a massive buzz about them and kids at school who were younger than me were wearing the hoodies. And, you know, they were like, we called them the mini mushers because they were all like in year seven or something and wearing Slipknot hoodies. And I got these two albums out from the library 
and took them home. <laughs> Steve's laughing at me. <laughs> and took them home and listened to them because we didn't have streaming then and things right. were expensive. And I put them on and for me, I just started listening to new metal and getting into that. And like my thoughts about Slipknot were, one, a lot of kids like them and things like people equal shit seem really immature and two it's really heavy and at first I could only really listen to wait and bleed and the rest of it I was like oh it's just kind of heavy and they're just being a bit stupid like I just didn't really get it um and it took a while for me to sort of come around to it and realize they're actually doing something really cool I think maybe if there hadn't been so many like little kids in their hoodies maybe I would have like come around to it sooner um but that yeah that was like the you know it wasn't some massive revelation for me it was sort of getting the records together and trying to like work it out a bit really Mm. that's fair um steve you you're probably a bit more kind of into your metal journey by that point maybe um but uh as in in a similar place to l you'd kind of already started to discover the music you like they weren't kind of the band that like got you into metal so maybe were you in a similar position what did you think when slipknot first turned up um so I remember my first sort of uh, experience of of Slipknot was basically um, the stories coming out of the Warp Tour in nineteen not the Warp Tour sorry the Ozfest in nineteen ninety nine when they were playing the second stage, um, and they just started to appear in various music magazines. First of all, like little introducing pieces. Then you know the other bands would be name name checking them. And then the pictures would become out of like, you know, this album will come out with this, these people, they're wearing masks. And I remember being kind of, you know, I've been into metal for about four years at this point. And you've got to think 1999 is sort of, I mean, for me, new metal was kind of done by 1999, to be honest. And I looked at it and I thought, here we go, mm-hmm. more people. Oh, how little you knew. <laughs> I mean, well, creatively speaking, I think it was done. And, um, uh, and you know, I, I was like, you know, this is just going to be another band of funny dressed people ripping off corn. That was what I thought it was going to be. Um, and then the first time I heard them was they were sandwiched on in between neurosis and atari teenage riot on a cd called the spirit of independence which was released by another music magazine and i was like oh there's that band um a bit weird that they're putting them in between neurosis and atari teenage riot and i listened to eyeless and i was like oh maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe this <laughs> is gonna be really good um and to give you quite a personal touch on the first time i heard the record if you don't mind is uh i was at college at the time and i was um i was doing guys and dolls uh with a bunch of drama students that was what i was doing at the time doing the old a-level drama and um they nobody liked metal and one week we were sort of rehearsing and I bought, the day it came out, I bought Significant Other by Limp Biscuit, And all of my cast mem- mates were like, oh, don't play your fucking screamy, horrible music. Wah. And I was like, no, you might like it, you might like it. And I played Significant Other all week. And they were like, oh, actually, this is quite good. Oh, yeah, I'm quite into this. It's quite good. Yeah, I don't mind Limp Biscuit. A week later, Slipknot, Slipknot came <laughs> out. And I bought that. And they went, oh, you bought another album. Let's listen to that. And <laughs> Amazing. They did not like that so much. Um, <laughs> But I do remember thinking straight away, hearing Slipknot, Slipknot, um, 
it just gave new metal, if you want to call it that. I mean, I think at the time people definitely thought of them as a new metal band. They definitely thought of as part of that scene. Like by sort of early 1998, I really thought new metal was crap. And then System of a Down, System of a Down gave it a bit of a shot in the arm. And then loads more kind of bands hopped on that bandwagon. And Slipknot were just probably the last band to give it that one last shot in the arm before I was like, this is really dead. And mm. the fact that they left it behind so quickly um, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it all really, I think. But yeah, it was it was pretty. It was a it was a big album in 1999, obviously. And mm. yeah, they they changed my mind really quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because when I first heard Slipknot, um, I uh, I got into metal the year after that album came out, and I had a friend who is who is already into Slipknot by the time I'd started getting into stuff like Limp Bizkit and Papa Roach and um lincoln park and all of that and the first time i heard slipknot i was literally like this is too heavy and noisy for me not in a sense that i was scared by it necessarily but i was definitely a bit like Ugh. and i remember my friend also bringing in that now famous shoot this might have been when iowa came out actually so i might be mixing up my timelines but i remember he brought in that famous shoot that was in kerrang with the with clown and the cow skulls um and just being like what <laughs> Like I thought that like Fred Durst swearing a bit was pretty edgy. Do you know what I mean? And then I saw all this stuff and I was just like, what is going on? What is this band? Um, and, it, and it's so fascinating what happened with Slipknot because as most people know, Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat came out a few years earlier. And at that point was, I think, to be considered Slipknot's debut. And then they had some very significant lineup changes. They regrouped. They got with Ross Robinson, a producer who is such a vital part of the Slipknot story. Um, and they basically just had a total rebirth with Slipknot um, and they just became, I mean, certainly the most exciting thing in metal at the time. The stories of them, you know, on Ozfest, just blowing every other band off the stage, supporting um, uh, various Cold Chamber, other... Cold Chamber, Machine Head and Amen with Slipknot in the middle. I actually watched... That's the one, YouTube. yeah. I actually watched on YouTube in the kind of build up to this, their half hour support slot in Michigan, which you can watch it on YouTube of them supporting Cold Chamber. And it's wild, man. It's it's wild. That's There's crazy. Half half empty venue supporting Cold Chamber, and it's fully formed Slipknot like playing. It's mad. That's amazing. They're set li- the the um, show they did at the Astoria on the the Slipknot um, uh, run is like legendary as well. It's one of those ones that everyone who's been there is like, I was there. You were there, weren't you? No, that's I, like that. I actually was there. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so that, presumably that was the first time we actually got to see them um, yeah. I'm just going to double check check the date now but I'm pretty sure that was on the Slipknot album yeah well, it was December 12th 1999 I want to guess that there you go so six months after the album had come out that was it came out in June of 1999 so you were seeing a band who had um, not only had a well received and increasingly notorious album under their belt but a band that was basically I don't know if perfecting is the right word when you talk about a band like Slipknot, but they would have been really into the groove of the Slipknot machine by that point. So what was that like? Um, it's a funny one, actually, the, that Slipknot Astoria show, because on one hand, it's definitely one of the most memorable shows that I've ever been to in my life. Um, certainly, like, watching them, the atmosphere for hours and hours before the gig. I don't know if you guys ever used to do this because I'm, I lived outside of London at the time and I'm guessing that you guys lived outside of London as well, but we're coming to London for gigs. I would often sort of get up at like 
nine in the morning and travel into London and just spend the day, you know, going to Metalheads in Camden and, you know, going to a pub or whatever, or getting a KFC. We didn't have a KFC in Basingstoke, so it was like a mad treat for me. And, um, and then you'd sort of queue up. Yeah, I used to do all of that. Yeah, two, three hours before the doors opened. Now, Slipknot um, at the Astoria, I remember getting there about kind of four in the afternoon and it was people were hanging off lampposts and trying to climb the walls and were just going absolutely berserk like three hours before the doors even opened. People had masks on, they were dressed up and it was it was proper carnage outside the venue before the doors even opened. Um, once Slipknot started coming on, I remember thinking, I've never seen anything like this in the flesh ever. Like their intro, you know, the kind of the... The, the whole thing I think is shit. The whole thing I like that seemed to play on a loop for about six minutes. Sick. Yes, before um, before they kicked into sick, and it seemed to play on a loop for ages and ages and ages before they came on. And that first time of watching them all walk through the curtain and just take their positions and stuff, I remember being like, I've never seen anything like this before. And they basically played the first album in full, kind of in order, pretty much, um, and. It was great. Yeah, they really did. I'm just looking at, apart from, apart from, yes, yeah, a couple of slight tweaks, but yeah, it's pretty much as yeah. you expect it, really. Finishing yeah. with scissors as well. Yeah, they did. They finished with Fucking scissors. Hell. And, um, yeah, I know, it was mental. And I mean, I don't know if this is kind of part of a spoiler of what we're going to talk about the album later on, but you realise how front-loaded that record is. Now, yeah. you realise how front-loaded it is. Either is it, is it front-loaded because those first kind of five or six songs are just so 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 unbelievably amazing that nothing else can really compete with them or does it genuinely drop off a little bit in the second half of the album mm. to be let's, discussed, to be let's discussed. talk about that because i mean so the first album is uh at the very i mean these are two classic albums we're talking about here it's a really hard pick between either of them and they're both vitally important not just to slipknot but to metal itself mm. um in terms of that i'm just going to say a little caveat as well and hold my hands up here um, anybody of a certain vintage will very much know the kind of uh, the famed history of the Roadrunner digipacks and all the multiple re-releases that albums used to get in the months following them coming out and stuff. I didn't come to Slipknot till a bit later and I've been trying to work out exactly which track list I grew up with because the Slipknot that's on Spotify has about 80 tracks on it. The Slipknot um, that you can check on various different Discog sites and stuff. Um, I mean, there's at least... There's a Digiport, uh, a Digipack version. There was a reissue recently. There's a European limited edition Digipack, which I think might have been the one I got. There's a reissue Digipack with extra bonus tracks, 10th anniversary edition. So there might be some songs we reference or talk about, which some of us had and some of us didn't have, because there was a lot of stuff that was coming out off the back of this album. Yeah, I want to um, say for the record, for me, I, wanted, I, wanted, I would call it the original release with Purity on it is the one yeah, definitely. that I brought. Purity wasn't included on one of the reissues, which seems mad because well, Slipknot fans always talk about that track. But it's, that was a, there was a legal battle regarding um, what happened with Purity. Um, uh, I can't actually remember exactly what It was happened. something about how they based it on a not-too story of a girl being buried yeah. alive by a man, but some people thought that the story was true and there was some outrage about this, so they left frail limb nursery and purity off the record 
Although I think in some of them they just left off Frail Limb Nursery and Purity yeah, isn't. Frail Limb Nursery was not on the version that I bought, but but Purity was. Yeah. And that was the Digipack version. And then I bought a reissue version that doesn't have Purity on it. So... Yeah, there's a lot of different stuff going on. But this is, you know, it all, it's all part of the legacy. And this is an era where bands could very much create the kind of mystique and controversy that, that metal was, was built on in many ways. Um, so we, let's go through this album. It's just an unbelievable album. I don't know if there's ever been a debut album ever that's, that started with a, with a run that can match Sick, Eyeless, Wait and Bleed, Surfacing and Spit It Out. I mean, that is fucking unbelievable. You've got their three main singles, uh, actually, was Surfacing a single? Wet and Bleeding Spit Out were definitely singles. And Sick, Eyeless and Surfacing are so beloved by Slipknot fans. They basically feel like singles, don't they? They yeah. kind of feel like they belong in that category. I think it's because you're used to hearing them so many times at the shows as well. Like, mm-hmm. I, can't, I don't know whether Surfacing was a single or not, but it's just the, that siren sound. As soon as you hear it, it just instantly like transports you. And when you hear that in a show as well, like everything sort of starts firing, doesn't it? Definitely. Um, Wait and Bleed and Spit Out were the only two singles from the, the, the debut album. Okay, cool. Yeah, I thought it might have been uh, correcting myself. But um, so, yeah, uh, it's just to start with a song like Sick, which is so fucking heavy and angry and savage. Um, and then to drop into Eyeless. One of the things I wrote about on some of the things I'm writing about Slipknot at the moment is that I don't uh, we, we know how heavy this album is and how angry it is and how raw it is. But I still don't think people realize how kind of just crazy it was in terms of how many different styles of music were getting thrown in here i mean you look at a track like spit it out um and in that in that bit you've got hip-hop in there you've got like dubstep in there there's like a dub like wub sound yeah that wub 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 um like obviously you've got metal you've got electronic music um eyeless has this kind of jungle uh, drum and bass intro to it i mean it's fucking crazy how much stuff was going on there and i think they actually dialed quite a lot of that back for iowa and i yeah. think one of the things i love most about this album is how totally unhinged it is in terms of you're just like what what's going on now what's this what's this bit what's that bit um i love that- all the little noises there's like little scratches little bouncy bits little like moans little breaths like there's just all these little bits of punctuation in there that just add to it well, that's the kind of thing that I think made people think that they were a new metal band. Definitely. All of those things are the reason why people considered Slipknot new metal at that point. And if you look at the kind of records within, say, quote unquote, new metal at that time, and when I talk about the kind of the paucity of ideas and the, the fact that new metal was dead, I mean, even from the, the big bands, you, I mean, you've got in 1999, if you look at the, the records that were released in metal in 1999, You've got issues by Corn, which went to which, as me and Merlin were saying before we started this, went to number one in the U.S. Billboard Top 100, Top two, Top 200, and kept Dr. Dre's 2001 off the top of the charts. So metal was so a, crazy, crazy. So metal wasn't in a bad place commercially, but I think creatively, I remember hearing issues, especially after hearing Slipknot and going. Yeah, you know, I kind of feel like I've heard this a little bit. You know, they said it's a a return to you know, the, the first couple of albums after Follow the Leader. I was shaking her head. Desperately shaking her head. That's where the generational differences come in, comes in. Not that there's like loads of years between us, but just in terms of when we came to metal, because I wasn't listening to Korn when Issues came out. I only heard Korn later and I thought Issues was amazing. So I wasn't primed in the same way as you were to respond to things in a certain way. Like for me, everything was new. Mm. But factually, 
<laughs> like Corn had done the type of thing that like, I'm not saying I think Issues is a really good record I've gone back to it um, I went back to it to a piece that's on you could on, say it's the best Corn record you wouldn't say that look let's safely I think we can safely say we'll save this for the Corn podcast Hall of Fame when we do yeah, that yeah yeah all I'm saying but then okay so to move it on right so The Burning Red by Machine Head which again is seen as their kind of new metal record um, that the sort of the, the rough edges around that were on Burn My Eyes and The More Things Change very, very definitely were were kind of shaved off a bit on the burning red. You've got albums like Home by Seven Dust, Dysfunction by Stained, Make Yourself by Incubus. They're all really, really big records. All those records feel much more cosy than even though they're in new metal. They're much more melodic and much more radio friendly than yeah the new metal that had come before if you listen to say adrenaline by deftones or the first snot album um or you know wisconsin death trip by static x which is why i couldn't get on board with slipknot at first because my background was in those kinds of records deftones too as well and, and some of the other records you just mentioned too but slipknot even the ones you just talked about slipknot felt heavier than all of those yeah but i think the, the interesting thing about Slipknot was is they had that element of, of that type of music that had started to become more commercial and more kind of looking towards getting on MTV etc etc but at the same time as that record came out you've also got Times of Grace by Neurosis coming out you've got fucking Calculating Infinity by the Dillinger Escape Plan coming out you've got We Are The Romans by Botch coming out so you've got this really really exciting vibrant underground of genuinely crushingly heavy and unique sounding bands and Slipknot's debut album it treads a really, really fine line between those two things. Um, and I think that's what makes it stand out from anything else that was going on at that time. Because to be able to merge those two things is, well, I don't really think you should be able to do that, you know? But to do it in such a way that's so fucking heavy and urgent and frenetic and just it's just ugly it's such an ugly record people really like to take it it is horrible and people really like to take the piss out of slipknot and i kind of feel like this vibe has gone away but i think in the same way that yeah they were definitely considered new metal at the time lots of snobbiness people going oh they're not a heavy band blah 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 i mean you listen to something like we talked about tattered and torn um like uh you listen to a song like which one's the really long one my mind's gone blank this one scissors yeah um, you listen to a track like that, like eight minutes and 23 seconds long of just ugly, horrible, nihilistic noise. You listen to the the kind of the slowed down sludgy riff that hits in Eyeless, which is probably my favorite moment on the whole album. Like this is a heavy fucking dark record. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's still like you were saying, Steve, ties in all those kind of new metal elements that just made it really cutting edge and interesting at the time. Mm. Um, Steve brought up a point earlier <clears throat> which was something I used to think very strongly about, actually. Um, and my opinion on that has softened a little bit, but it's that whether this album is a little bit too front-loaded, in, certainly in terms of hit singles, but it's, it's interesting that kind of all the major songs that they still play to this day are pretty much universally all from the first half of this album. I thought that when I listened to it, and I thought maybe I was being, like, basic because I like the more, because <laughs> I like the bigger songs and that you guys were going to say, no, you just don't understand. Like these are the best ones. But the, the other weird thing is though, when you listen to Iowa, like I would say the same about Iowa. And again, you guys may disagree, but um, just discounting like 
the opener because that's not really a proper track. Then you've got People Equal Shit, Disaster Piece, My Plague, Everything Ends, Heretic Anthem, uh, Gently. Uh, I mean, it's not like as big as the other ones, but then Left Behind, The Shape. It's like that run is like, what, eight, is that eight songs or something or seven songs? Oh, so Left Behind is, yeah, eight yeah. tracks. I, I wasn't doing any maths. But I mean, that's an amazing run. And then after that, I feel like the songs that follow aren't as good as what came at the beginning. So I kind of feel like it is like that on both records to an extent. Yeah. I don't think it's as, I mean, for me, it's not as pronounced on Iowa as it is on Slipknot. And that's with all, you know, purity, liberate, no life. Some really, really great songs in that second half. I think one thing that I, I took away from listening to it this week, which spit it out goes into tattered and torn and you get sick eyeless weight and bleed service and spit it out and it is just like being vomit like full-blown vomited on totally for for you know 15 20 minutes and then tattered and torn which again is a horrible creepy like you just go oh no it kind of makes your skin crawl that song and it's only less than three minutes long but it just feels like this really long kind of very very nasty like it feels longer than it is to me because it's it's kind of slower and it doesn't strictly do anything or go anywhere and that used to be the point for me where i was like man this record has lost all momentum it's just it momentum just goes boom stops straight dead like that Mm. and listening to it this week i actually knowing what was coming after it i actually probably for the first time thought that maybe tattered and torn it's quite a good place to put it in because yeah, if you spit it out, if you, if you put say um, only one in between surfacing and spit it out, that song just kind of, kind of falls flat on its ass really, doesn't it? Like in the nicest possible way, I think it's very, very difficult for any of those songs in the second half, as good as some of them are to compete with anything because that first half, like you quite rightly say, Mel, the first five songs are as good as any metal band have ever sounded at any point ever. I mean, fuck debut album. I think you could say has put five songs from any record by anyone ever together. And I think they're going to struggle to compete with that. Yeah. It's an interesting one because I used to kind of hold it against this record a bit to the point where I used to say like, I don't know if it's kind of fair to say this is, you know, a debut album that you know people compare this album to like appetite for destruction and like the the all-time great classics um and to me it's so front-loaded in terms of single power that i used to kind of think can you really say it's on that level because the the pure kind of like rate of bangers just isn't quite the same but in recent years i've come much more to appreciate the kind of journey it takes you on where you kind of get this horrible fast like spat out kind of like steve said like vomited like flurry of fast relentless songs and then the kind of journey of the album really begins and it really takes you into the kind of dark if, if this was just an ep that was just those first six tracks five tracks um it would be just a great pacey relentless fast kind of on the edges of new metal uh records but what it actually then does is it goes darker and it goes heavier and it goes even uglier and i actually kind of appreciate it all the more for that and I think what it actually results in is a proper album that takes you on this journey where it kind of smashes you around the face and then very slowly disembowels you over the next kind of 40 minutes that follows. Yeah. Um, so no, in terms of just sort of pure song power, you can't compare like 
dilute it to spit it out. You can't. But as an as a kind of overall body at work, the pacing of this album and the way it kind of slowly falls into something really fucking horrible to the point where it does have this like eight minute nightmare that is scissors um, is actually fucking amazing and an amazingly mature uh, thing for a band to compose at that point in their career. Yeah. Anyone else? Sorry, go on, Steve. Well, I was just going to say, I think like that Tattered and Torn actually now from a song, which I used to be like, Oh God, hear it. Well, why did I have to let up there? Like it was going so well and it just all the momentum goes. I now kind of realized that they had to to put the handbrake on because Mm -hmm. The second half of the record just does something else. Um, but yeah, sorry, go on, Elle. I was just going to say, it makes me feel really physically uncomfortable and like really physically sick. It's like you can sit down and listen to this record and it just makes you, f- it makes everything kind of like go tense and makes everything, it makes me feel like manic. But even if I'm not sitting down and listening to the record, if I've just got the record on, and I'm sort of doing something else, it still makes me feel like that. It's just this weird automatic response. It's like having some sort of like, I don't want to say drug or something, but it's like, it's like some sort of stimulus that your body like reacts to, even if you're not doing anything. Like it's the intensity of it is just so striking. It's absolutely relentless. And yeah, it definitely still provokes those same kind of uh, feelings for me as well. In a way that Slipknot never really did again for me, for better or worse. Um, obviously, they did one of the all-time great moves next for any band, really. Probably the defining um, statement that proved once and for all that if you are an alternative, a heavy rock band, and you're suddenly finding mainstream success, and there's maybe pressure on you to go out and write a bunch of hit singles and kind of soften up your sound and compromise in a way that will make you more, you know, quote-unquote, like, mainstream-friendly, um, that isn't something you have to do at all because what Slipknot actually went and did next was something even arguably heavier, even darker, um, and maybe even uglier as well. Uh, Iowa came out in 2001, um, to be more precise, it was. The 28th of August, 2001. Good, I'm glad you've got your thing up more uh, prominently <laughs> than I have on my tabs. Uh, yeah, so again, late, late summer 2001. Um, <clears throat> and you've got to bear in mind that in between these two albums, two very significant things had happened in the metal scene. Chocolate Starfish, which basically saw the kind of frat boy movement within new metal and metal itself reach its absolute apex, and Hybrid Theory, which provided metal's all-time kind of polished, um, carefully constructed, super mainstream friendly, still very much a classic album, but just kind of really pushed at the boundaries of what can still be considered metal. Um, and so it would have been very understandable for Slipknot to come back with an album that had like 10 weight and bleeds on it, but that is absolutely not what they did. And this is actually around the time that I started properly listening to Slipknot. So my relationship with it's a bit different, but how did you guys kind of feel when you heard this album for the first time? For me, I heard it at the same time as the self-titled, like I said, I got them out at the same time. So really have like, um, a way to distinguish between them. It was all just kind of part of the same thing. So it's only afterwards that I've learned the background of both of them, where they came from. And you can obviously see now, like the first one was this massive blast of intensity. And the first time they'd done something and getting in a room together and Ross Robinson screaming at them and throwing pots and stuff. And then this one feels just a lot more um, uh, sort of put together. Like it's it's still very, very heavy, but there's more of a shape 
to it and it's really groovy as well it was the first album mm. where jim played on all the tracks he played on two in the first one and that even when it's really heavy there's like loads and loads of groove on it which is really cool but um yeah steve you probably have more of a reaction to hearing it after the debut yeah um i mean i was i guess i was kind of i kind of i was still invested in slipknot but my taste has kind of changed quite a lot over the the sort of ensuing 12 months or so because i mean i think it was as me and Mel spoke recently, um, a year before this relationship with Command Back the Driving came out, uh, which is my favourite album ever made. And that kind of changed a lot about the type of music that I was listening to. So although I still quite liked Slipknot, I wasn't as like, oh my God, as I was on, about this. I wasn't as excited about this because I'd started getting more into like hardcore and um, and sort of underground emo and, and all that kind of stuff that was happening at the time. So um 2001 is actually a really great year for i think challenging um which is funny when you talk about chocolate starfish and stuff because i immediately when i think of 2001 think of an album like toxicity lateralis um blackwater park came out in 2001 by opeth i feel like there was a distinct um want from a lot of people to kind of uh do something as a reaction to what was going on in new metal um i feel like there was it was definitely kind of two camps of people uh, already post kind of hybrid theory, which I've spoken about a lot over the years, you know, Jane Doe by Converge came out that year as well. So um, I was still definitely thought Slipknot were not, you know, not that I didn't think they were head PE or anything, but I wasn't mad invested in them. Like I might've been or that intrigued by them as like I was in 1999. That being said, due to the, the chart battle, which happened, I did go out and buy Iowa straight away um, because I was just like, I want this to get to number one. You know, I desperately want this to get to number one. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, um, Iowa went in at number one on the charts. It actually peaked in the, in the UK album charts at 37 two years before. The debut album peaked at, peaked at number 37, peaked at number 51 on the US Billboard chart, went in at number one on the UK album chart, beating off the debut album by The Strokes, and five the boy band five that all the media were talking about five versus the strokes to be number one and this fucking band coming from nowhere and just knocked both of them off the top of the chart again absolutely mental thing to happen and especially i think i heard um the Heri the heretic anthem on a sort of cover mount cd in the nme i think it was as well uh and i was like wow this feels like at least as heavy as eyeless um mm. and when i got it back i was i was pretty taken aback that slipknot had gone in that direction you know delighted but taken aback all the same because it's fucking heavy this record it is fucking heavy and and it starts with what is in my opinion by far and away the greatest opening lyric on a second record ever here we go again, motherfucker, followed by that riff. It's like, I just got goosebumps even just thinking about it. it so and like, People Equal <laughs> Shit is like, I, I, the, on the thing I wrote about it, um, I said, on paper, it's the dumbest Slipknot song ever. People Equal Shit is one of the worst song titles that's ever been written, ever. Like, if, you, if you, someone thought that as a song title, you'd be like, that is fucking ridiculous. And yet, it's one of the best songs they've ever done, and it totally fucking works. It was written, I think as a bit of a riposte to 
uh, kind of the industry and, and, and all the kind of shit that was going on around them at the time. Loads of pressure on the band, loads of internal strife within a band as well, which I think is really important to, to talk about and or at least recognize in terms of understanding the context of this album. The band were at war with the industry. They were at war with themselves and they come out swinging with this song that is just, I mean, El, you talked about the groove. The groove in this track just instantly makes you feel um, and envision like a sea of people just bouncing up and down and going, absolutely do, Lally. Um, I think one of the cleverest things this album does is manage to achieve that thing of making Slipknot sound sound bigger without sacrificing a single thing about what made them so heavy and urgent in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, like, um, in the sense of it's just sounding so big and so groovy. And it just feels like, um, although obviously you've said this record is really, really heavy and it is really heavy, uh, I think I found it easier to get into than the debut because there's so much melody. Like there's melody in the first one and things like Wait and Bleed or that amazing melody in Purity. And I think, you know, when Corey came into the band, he was injecting more of that melody into it than they'd had previously. And on this record, People Equal Shit is really, really heavy, but it's also just like really melodic and the same you know like with my plague and everything ends and the heretic anthem and left behind like there's just there's still um it's hooky it's heavy but it's really hooky as well it is yeah it's uh it's a kind of a deceptively catchy album in a lot of ways um i mean yeah we talked about kind of the the idea of them of slip not peaking early on these first two records i think you can make an argument for that as well although with Left Behind, which is the biggest song on this album, being kind of half, well, just over halfway through, it maybe presents a slightly different dynamic. Um, it is quite interesting what happens after that, though. There's some, there's some weird little things going on there as well. Obviously, again, Iowa to finish the album is, uh, obviously, they they quite enjoyed finishing with just like ugly, long barrages of noise. <laughs> it goes on for a while. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if scissors, scissors felt like a long eight minutes, but Iowa feels like even maybe even less of a song than scissors, but it's twice. It's almost that. not, is it? It's kind of like an atmospheric yeah. kind of horrible thing. Um, I mean, the big songs on this, if you're going to compare big songs with the big songs, people equal shit is just about as good as anything I've ever done. My plague is a funny one because I feel like, it was a, I mean, for, for me, I remember that being a fucking massive song when that was released because that came after Left Behind, but it was tied in with the Resident Evil film. The video was all over the music channels. Um, and yet, they don't, I don't think they play it a whole lot nowadays. And it's not really, um, I'm not sure it's quite been come to see as like a classic Slipknot anthem like a lot of their other songs are. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, if we're going kind of start for start, the there's no doubt that the first album has the more well-known and the more kind of iconic anthemic songs. And that's with Disaster Peace, People Equal Shit, Heretic Anthem, which are three of, you know, that, that you will always hear at every Slipknot show come rain or shine sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's a funny one. I, I think maybe the kind of, the fact that the start, even though this is, I, I, I agree, this is kind of, the first half of this is certainly more enjoyable to just stick on than the second half. I'm I'm going to stop short of saying better because I think actually the second half has got some, like you said, Mel, some very odd shit in it. Some mm. really weird um, esoteric uh, flights of fancy from a band who clearly don't give a fuck about 
their chart position or, or, or their kind of commercial aspirations, which is pretty ironic considering where, where they ended up in the charts and how many records they sold around this time. Um, but uh, it almost feels like a bit of a strength of the album in whole as a whole to not have that blockbuster opening because you know a, a lot of people do just tend to go oh the first six songs on the first Slipknot album and yeah and the rest of it, it, it's quite front-loaded I don't necessarily think you can say this is as front-loaded uh, as obviously front-loaded I should say um, but the first half is probably more enjoyable I feel like the, if you're that, making just a fun Slipknot playlist you'd definitely pick more from the first eight tracks if you're just going to put on put, put a playlist together to just like get you in the mood for a fun gig or whatever yeah you know what you're picking yeah. um but again it's it's interesting that the albums are structured in a similar way they kind of they have these big moments and then they just kind of devolve into these horrible nasty experimental um passages of noise um uh yeah, it's, they, they basically, they didn't really repeat the trick. They kind of refined the trick and turned it into something else. Um, I think it's really interesting as well. I mentioned a little bit earlier, but I feel like um, Sid's slightly less present on this album. Um, the, the, the kind of electronic and certainly more like dance, got drum and bassy, scattershot elements don't feel as present on here. They're still there, but they're kind of buried away and they're deployed in a more kind of sinister, weird way. Um, so I don't know if that was a kind of, like Steve suggested, like a conscious step away from many new metal comparisons of what that was. But um, it definitely felt like this was the album where, you know, they kind of stepped away from being considered like a new metal band, really. I, and they never really looked back. I think that, that, you know, this is very definitely a more metal record, if you like. Mm. And the the kind of, the blast beats and the, the kind of tremolo picks and stuff that you hear throughout this record that, you know, obviously the, first, the the only album to get to the number one in the UK that has ever had anything like that on it. And I mean, I think maybe where Iowa, not just in terms of its broader, this massive commercial smash that it had, despite being so ugly, I think that would have done a lot. When people talk about Slipknot being this like kids band and, you know, oh, they're for, you know, sort of like mini moshers and all that. I know you've already used that out and not in a particularly derogatory way, but I know that people used to say, oh, Slipknot, they're just a kids band, listen to proper this and that and the other. I know that's definitely what I thought in the beginning, for sure. Mm. Like, I did. And I know there are people that do think that, but I think that this album sort of makes a mockery of that, really, because, um, <laughs> you know, it's not really a surprise to me that within a few years, um, you know, they were taking Inflames out on tour around this time. And this is Inflames when they are very definitely a super heavy, you know, death metal band, like a melodic death metal band, a proper Swedish melodic death yeah, metal band. Well, it was, yeah, it was off the back of Clayman. So they kind of started to mm. become a bit more anthemic there. But yeah, they were still a relatively unknown yeah, it's his pre-reroute to remain, I think, unless it was actually yeah. on that tour. I think maybe. it was actually on reroute to remain, actually. It what? I think it was actually on reroute to remain that they went out with him. Uh, okay, so yeah. It's it's a bit just, more, yeah. They yeah. started to become a bit more polished, but they were still kind of a real outside, like Inflames are kind of part of the furniture in the mainstream metal scene now, and they definitely weren't at that point. Yeah, absolutely they weren't. It's, it felt like a really odd thing to do. Because um, it was them and One Minute Silence, I believe, 
A woman it was, yeah. I nearly, I nearly went to that gig and I decided not to at the last minute. I'm fucking gutted I never went to that. Which, you know, that one-minute silence would be a much more obvious take for a kind of new metal band around the turn of the millennium, uh, a new metal band in, in quotation marks, if you like. But, you know, it's not much of a surprise to me that within a few years you see the rise of more extreme bands, you know, the, that people actually en masse started listening to you know, mastered on the Get an Album of the Year in um, various publications and Children of Bodom blew up quite soon after that. And these bands were very kind of regimented, like Lamb of God as well, you know, were happening around this time. And Lamb of God were fucking heavy back then. This is like the kind of just post Burn the Priest. And, you know, like the success and the the, the sort of Dimmu Borgir and Cradle and, you know, that that kind of thing, I don't think that could have happened to such an extent if people weren't a bit used to it from listening to Iowa. I totally agree. I know I completely agree. I, I think um, that album absolutely, you know, there, there's, 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 it's not even <coughs> death metal like segments. There is like death metal on this album, mm. pure unadulterated death metal riffs and, and drums and everything else. Um, and they absolutely took extreme metal to a level where it had never been seen before. And I don't, I really don't think right now you'd have as many people being able to see extreme metal bands fill out big venues across Europe and the States um, without this record. Now I'm not going to say that everybody that likes death metal in 2020, it's thanks to Slipknot, of course not. But um, there are a lot of people that probably have gone on to that thanks to Slipknot. Um, And I think that that's a massive part of this album's legacy. Um, Before we kind of vote, on which of these records to enter into the Hall of Fame. Is there anything, any of you, either kind of points you want to score or, or make any specific points about all things Slipknot before we do this? I was just going to say about the Mini Moshers thing. I think you were sort of meaning it maybe like in the sense that people thought they were Mini Moshers because they weren't heavy enough. Whereas I think when I was growing up and seeing like the kids, for me it was the fact they were Mini Moshers and um, I thought it was a sort of certain level of kind of immaturity because of the image thing. And it's like, oh, there's a guy of, there's bunch of people in masks like swearing and there's kids around the village like wearing hoodies I think like that that was a slightly separate thing and in terms of what mini moshes meant to me and what mini moshes probably meant to like all the metalers mm-hmm. um but I think also just like even though I thought that Slipknot at that time were being like immature by doing the people equal shit thing I think actually <laughs> I was the immature one and I hadn't realized how much <laughs> not South Park mate you don't have to say we like, all something today <laughs> I hadn't realized like how much hideous stuff there was in the world I was very sheltered and like now having seen like the hideous underbelly of life I think I identify uh, or can empathize more with where they were coming from wow fair enough it's, are we are we kind of agreed that these are um, bearing in mind that they've done a lot of fucking great stuff as well and, I, and I've got to say listening again to We Are Not Your Kind earlier fucking unbelievable album but um we kind of comfortably agreed this is the best, the two best Slipknot albums. We feel justified that these are the ones. Elle's shaking her head. Wow. I mean, I was going to say, I'm going to let you get to it, Elle. Sorry to... No, no, it's fine. I had a period where kind of after really sort of missing out on metal for a little bit, I did kind of, I wasn't fussed with Slipknot. And hearing volume three made me go, oh, I actually really appreciate this band a lot more because I think... There's stuff like um, Prelude 3.0 and Circle on that record. And, and I listened to that and I thought, now they feel to me like, and I think I said it to you, Merlin, for a while it was my favourite record because 
it made me realize how much better they had got as actual songwriters. And it wasn't just like, you know, very, very, let's be super heavy and let's go people equal shit. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm 666 and all this kind of what I thought uh, uh, there were five, points. Five, where, five, Steve. Huh? Five, five, five. Yeah, well, you know, either. Um, <laughs> you're five, five, five and I'm six, six. Uh, but yeah, but, um, but yeah, but I just thought they had become very, very good songwriters and i thought they that the, the kind of the branching out of their sound on volume three wasn't necessarily something which i saw coming and so for a long time i was always like and i still even recently was like i think that is objectively speaking on a musical level if you like um the best made slipknot record the most kind of cohesive the most varied the most um sort of if you were to put that in front of your music 101 professor and he would look at the actual sort of conception and writing of the record, which I know is a very kind of analytical way to look at it. But I did think that that is the kind of objectively speaking would be seen as a much better constructed album, if you like. Um, going back and listening to it now, I'm not sure I do feel like that anymore. I think these two probably are the best records, actually. Maybe I've just gone back to listening to liking really fucking gnarly shit again. Regressed. <laughs> yeah, probably. I was going to say, Vol 3 has long been my favourite one. And last week on the podcast, I was like, oh, I think it might be We Are Not Your Kind. And <laughs> I think Vol 3 is, is probably my favourite Slipknot record, but We Are Not Your Kind is really close. And maybe it is it's very close between them because just the point you're making about their songwriting i think we are not your kind has amazing songwriting on it i think there's got there's just every track's amazing i just love every single track on it there's something dark or weird or interesting or catchy or like creepy or sinister about like every single one of those tracks and i just think top to bottom like i can put the whole record on and just really really enjoy it um vol three was my favorite for a long time and like i said i think vol 3 is basically level with we are not your kind but there's so much diversity and interesting things on there and um you know it felt like they were all kind of a unit but were branching out into just these different places they hadn't been before and i do remember there was an outcry from people being like why haven't you just given us like another really hard record but um again being somebody who kind of falls down on the more melodic side anyway it really appealed to me with vermilion and everything i thought this is a really interesting take on what they're doing but um, and also I just want to give a shout out to All Hope Is Gone because people seem to not like that record and I think it's oh. great so. oh. it's a good it's record it is rubbish love the song Gehenna I love how like, oh, you know what? like it's like twisted and creepy I love the, the, the melodies in it are brilliant that song is actually for me where or I think I've, I've been switching up all week on Hope Is Gone because I haven't really listened to it properly for years. This is because I said I liked it and you were like, this is yeah, terrible. It, no, yeah. And Elle said, I was like, oh, this is not good, is it? Because I've just been listening to the first two albums and then I went and listened to All Hope Is Gone and I was like, mm. but then I listened to it again and I was like, okay, the first few tracks, um, bit of a theme going on here. The first few tracks are actually great. The first track, uh, The Killing Name. Sulfur's great, Psychosocial's great, Dead Memory's great, Vendetta's really good. And then for me, Butcher's Hook is not a great song. I really don't like Gehenna. I recognise that a lot of people really like it, but I think it's a bit like Corey Taylor doing the kind of thing. It's just, I don't know. I'm not Fine. About that. I think if any other band released All Hope Is Gone, you'd think it was crap. And if, but because I don't think that's right at all. I genuinely I enjoy it as a record. I think it's cool. I think for any normal metal band, it's crap. But for Slipknot, it's really crap. 
It's like <laughs> <laughs> it's like two out of ten bad. Psychosocial is. Oh, come on. Why do you think it's two out of ten? It's genuinely good. Me and it's Steve not... actually argued about this, and even I was like, "Come on, two out of ten. It's, it's really got one song on it, and it's not as good as a type. It's a version of a song that they do much better. Psychosocial, you can't really argue with it. It's a banger, but it's not even as good. I mean, it's not as good as Duality. It's not even as good as Unsainted. I think All Hope. Right. Well, Duality is my favourite song. Turkey. So. All Hope is gone to Turkey. It's like it's really not a Turkey. It's really it's not. not. It's wow. Well, controversial opinions are plenty. <laughs> I don't think uh, controversial. I think everyone thinks that shit that record. Well, I, I, how do you know who I was saying? How do you know I was saying yours was the controversial one? Oh right, okay, yeah. Very controversial, Ella. I say Joel's is my favourite song, but I'm obsessed with Solo Firth now, so it's Solo Firth. Actually, I was just thinking that Solo Firth. Yeah, Solo Firth. Solo Firth has got into my probably top five Slipknot songs ever. I love it. I never thought I'd say, but it is fucking phenomenal that song. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the first two Slipknot albums. Who we putting into the Metal Hunt podcast? All of them. We can never take this back. Why do you guys make me rank things all the time? We can never take this back, guys. Once this is done, this is done forever. If Corey Taylor comes angrily screaming at (laughs) us that we put in the wrong one, it's too late. It's too late. Ellen, Um, what are are the top five things that you don't like to rank? I don't like to rank anything. (laughs) Steve. (laughs) I'll make a list of the top five things that you don't want to rank. Steve, I'm going to come to you first. That's like torture. Uh, Steve, okay. I'm coming to you first. Slipknot or Iowa? What's what's your vote? I think on a kind of, um, it, I mean, when we did Manson, I spoke a lot about the kind of contextual importance of that record. And although that was much easier for me because I do think both musically and in terms of their career, in terms of the sort of Manson career, I think Antichrist Superstar wins on both counts. I think it's a little bit harder because I don't think you can get away from the fact that although the debut album was a big bombshell in our scene, uh, I don't think new metal would reach its commercial peak at that point. I also think there were much more interesting and heavier albums released, even in 1999, when you look at Botch and the Dillinger Escape Plan, than the Slipknot record that year. So I think although it was a big record, it just felt like a really big, unusual kind of very very heavy new metal record by this weird band at that time i wasn't necessarily sure that they were going to be able to follow it up i didn't necessarily know that they were going to go on to do anything that would top it so for them to come back and release a record which is arguably heavier definitely weirder and get it to number one and basically kind of set in motion this 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 change which turned them into from this band that people didn't really know what to expect from to what they are now which is i think merlin earlier you said possibly the third biggest metal band ever i mean i'd say fourth after sabbath um oh yeah of course metallica um but probably probably the fourth biggest no actually actually i think certainly in the last 20 years i don't think I mean, Black Sabbath did get a number one album as well. I don't. I, I think if you were gonna if you were gonna book a tour and you were gonna say who's gonna sell more tickets for this tour, Slipknot or Black Sabbath, I think you'd be pretty fucking close, actually. Well, let's hope no one ever has to do that. Um, well, it's very unlikely now. <laughs> yeah, very unlikely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't like. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know really. Um, but yeah, but I think probably for what it did to metal, I think Iowa. You can't really argue with it. But on a purely musical level, for me, 
I think the first Slipknot album due to that great start. Oh, you swerved me twice then. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I don't know, because I'm, I'm really, str- I'm really, really struggling with this. I'm really struggling. Um, on a musical level, I think I do prefer the first Slipknot record. I don't think anything has ever sounded as vital as those first six songs. And I do think though the rest of the album is great as well. I just think those first six songs are so great that people almost downplay how good the second half is. I think if you gave someone the second half, you played that album backwards, maybe not starting with scissors, but if you played that album backwards, people would still be going, Oh my god, this album's fucking great. Mm. And then they'd be really going, This is great. Uh I think there's a little bit of weirdness that I'm not that keen on on Iowa. Um, the title track is way too long um, and kind of unnecessary. So you're going yeah. with Slipknot? I'm going with Slipknot, yeah, fuck it. All right. L, I'm coming to you next. Slipknot or Iowa? I hate you doing this. I well, don't, you've got I the opportunity like... to, to leave it down to me. That's the thing. That's why I'm asking <laughs> you. <laughs> it's up to you. Right, well, the first record honestly makes me feel like I'm being turned inside out and all my insides are on the outside and I feel all gross and horrible. But I like the fact that it makes me feel like that. I love, like you said, I love those first five tracks. They're amazing. Um, Iowa, if you were to sit me down and say, which record do you want to listen to all the way through? I'd choose Iowa because mm. um, it's just got, it's more of like... Um, a reasonably paced album it's sort of it's it's less turn you inside out or more kind of take you on this heavy groovy journey through stuff um and i kind of like that i like the fact that it does that for me um and there's probably kind of more on it that i would kind of uh, more on it that i kind of instantly connect to it makes me feel less hideous but still interested Oh, I really can't decide. It's hard, isn't it? It's fucking hard. <laughs> it's really hard. I was hoping that by vocalising it, it would make the decision for me. Oh. No pressure, Al, but this is the Metal Hammer Podcast Hall of Fame. <laughs> I don't know. It's like one of the records literally just came out and like, you know, introduced into the world and is like heavy and the other one is like settling into it and progressing it and i think it's so hard to choose between those two things go with your heart i i think part of the reason we do this is that it doesn't have to be the obvious choice so if you have a choice that you think is more obvious in your head but you actually you know like with manson you went with mechanical animals didn't you before we came into this i was going to pick iowa but having listened to them and thought about it and compared it now i feel like the self-titled one has more of a visceral impact so I feel like I'm leaning towards that one, even though if you sat me down and said, which one do you want to listen to? I'd probably pick Iowa. And I think that's where the, why the choice is difficult for me. So what's your choice? Oh. <laughs> Eleanor. You thought you'd got away with that. Eventually this podcast has to end and it can't end until you've said Iowa or Slipknot. Right, okay. I'm just saying, <laughs> we're taking longer than scissors to make this decision. <laughs> Fucking hell. I thought listening to the explanation of that fucking Havoc song was like <laughs> was exhausting. <laughs> I hate this so much, I actually can't decide. Flip a coin. Do you know what? That's a really good idea because then when you can see the one you land on, it's whether you want that one or not. Yep. 
Flip a fucking coin. No, because then you see if you're happy or not when you get the result. That's how it works. You won't be, because you don't like making a choice either way, surely. I'm actually doing it. I'm getting out of coin. I was literally flipping a coin live on air. And then I'm going to see how I feel about it. Wow. It's like watching to see which end the football team is going to kick off from. It's going to be best out of three. She's going to go two-face on us. What was it? It came out as the first one. So is that your choice? I'm not going to decide on the coin. Fucking come on. Uh, We've still got reader questions to go through, so you've got to have to make a choice. I'm going to pick the first one because the way it makes me feel. Well, there's no impact. I'm going to pick that one. Amazing. Well, if it, if it helps you feel better, that was my choice as well. So it's a, it's a clean sweep. It's a clean sweep for the debut. A very, very, arguably the hardest opening two records to pick from, from any metal band ever. Both just phenomenal, phenomenal albums. Um, and you could definitely make a, a case for Iowa being more important, um, being like refining their sound, even taking their sound into a better place than it was. But I think for what Slipknot represent for me, um, I cannot put into words better than just playing someone those, those first five tracks off the first album. And um, then, I, as I said earlier, I actually think the album's maybe even better for it, for going on that horrible, nasty journey that it then takes you on afterwards. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Slipknot by Slipknot joins Antichrist Superstar and Seven Son of a Seven Son in the Metal Hammer, the what? The Metal Hammer Podcast Hall of Fame. I've been talking for too long. Um, Stay tuned to the Metal Hammer Facebook, uh, the Reader's Facebook, that is, to find out what the next entry uh, up for nomination into the Hall of Fame will be. Let's blast through some questions because I know we're low on time now. Uh, Same address if you want to read, um, if you want to pose us some questions, facebook.com slash Metal Hammer Readers. Daniel Reese asks, was great music coming from Code Orange, Nightwish, Testament, Enter Shikari and Trivium all being released during this quarantine? What coming upcoming albums are you most looking forward to? Uh, new Stephen Wilson is supposed to be coming out uh, still, I believe, on the twelfth of June. Um, that should be good. Uh, new, oh, I really like Oms. Do you guys like Oms? They got an album called Close coming out on the twenty sixth of uh, June. Yeah, June, I believe. So I don't mind Oms. I don't mind Oms. They're quite good. They played Bloodstone, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did, and. Um, their new album is, I mean, I may be talking as if, if you, I'm not saying that I've heard it, but if I had heard it, I would probably be saying that it'd be worth getting excited about. Good. Well, hopefully when you do hear it, you, uh, you won't make a mug of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> if that's cryptic enough for nudge, you. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, I always thought you pronounced it Ohms, so then you've educated me on that. Oh, maybe you do. I don't know. Uh, L, looking forward to anything in particular? Uh, Barry Tomorrow album's been pushed back, Cannibal, but I'm interested to get into that. I'm looking forward to the A.A. Williams album that feels yeah. uh, like that's been, I mean, it's not been a long time coming, but like it's as soon as she put that first EP out and the little other things she's done, been all up for a full length. That's coming just, in July, so I'm looking forward to that. Just review that for the magazine. Should be a new Death Tones record as well, so that would be good. Yeah, yeah, I mean, consi- assuming things don't get pushed back to next year because of everything that's going on, we're thinking there should be new Death Tones. I'm very hopeful for New Gajira at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels about time to me to get an Avenged Sevenfold album on the way. I yeah. don't have any 
insider knowledge on that, but it's been four years since the stage this year, so it's round about time, so hopefully they're up to something. Yeah, I think it's going to be new every time I die. Uh, maybe new Mastodon as well. I've heard on the grapevine. Ah, uh, yeah, Mastodon. Yeah, definitely a lot of good bands that uh, are kind of in or around that space. Yeah, um, I wonder if Architects might be thinking about new music soon as well. Holy Hell's coming up for two years, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that will be. Yeah, it will be two years at the end of this year. Um, yeah, there's going to be new. Uh, I believe there's going to be a new Smashing Pumpkins. I think they've got a new album coming out. Red Fang. I've got a new album coming out as well. Um, yeah, every time I died, I say that I can't remember. Anyway, there's, yeah, there's plenty of plenty of good bands. Loads of stuff coming, Daniel. Don't worry. Um, L, do you want to read out this next one? Sure. Mark Baker asks: Slipknot's self-titled album absolutely blew my brains when little sixteen slash seventeen year old pop punk me first heard it, and nothing has even resulted in such a massive step change in the music I listened to. Even moving on to more extreme music later on was a more natural, gradual thing. What artist or album corresponds to the biggest step change in musical listening for yourselves? What album made you go, you were on a bit of a journey and then you just went, whoa, and you're like, oh, I'm this now. Um, Certainly for metal, I would say probably Roots by Sepultura or Hearing Rat in the Hatter by Sepultura. I've said this a lot over various different platforms, I think, but... um, you know, I was quite into Britpop and I was into pop punk and stuff like that. You know, their the offsprings and green days and that sort of thing. I like the Foo Fighters and I like Stone Temple Pilots. But when I heard Rat Hatter, I was like, this is mental. And it was that thing. Like, I think hearing Rage Against the Machine made me want to hear something heavier. But they are still obviously much more of a rock band as opposed to a metal band. And um, yeah, hearing Sepultura was like hearing the thing that I, you know, the heavy thing that I wanted to hear. And I know people have a kind of weird relationship with that record, but I think it's the best Sepultura record comfortably. I think it's a musically much more interesting record than, well, most of what became new metal. Uh, fucking brilliant. But that's probably the record that made me want to listen to like Fear Factory and Typo Negative and Corn and Deftones and all those bands. So probably that. L, your choice? I mean, for me, I've just said this a billion times, that just getting into new metal was the biggest thing because you know often people are like oh I got into metal because like my brother liked it or my best friend liked it and it's like I liked boy bands I had no idea that metal was a thing I didn't know about metal until new metal came along because it took over the mainstream so heavily so if it hadn't been for that I wouldn't even know about heavy music or at least I wouldn't have done for a long time um, but apart from that just uh, getting into bands like Opeth and stuff because um, there was a lot of melody in there but they were on the more extreme end of things and then I kind of started listening to, I can't really remember what order I listened to things in, but um, I always liked hearing bands like Opeth because some extreme metal I found very difficult to get into, not only just the sound, but because it was such like a male world as well. And it was, it felt quite closed off and quite elitist. Whereas bands like Opeth, it felt like there was more of a space for you to kind of um, get in and enjoy them and get a lot out of it. It was a slightly different crowd um yeah that sort of thing i guess that's fair uh, yeah i mean i'm a new metal kid as well originally so that was definitely where i came in limp biscuit completely changed my life in that respect but i would definitely cut slightly similar um vein to what i was saying definitely give a big shout out to uh, in flames because um i heard yeah. system on a uh as in the song by in flames not system of the down 
Um, I heard them on a compilation CD that came with Kerrang. And um, to me, that was suddenly like a different type of heavy that I just wasn't used to. Like, even though they were super polished already by that point and very catchy, um, you could hear that kind of death metal just still hiding under it. And I was just like, what the hell is this? Um, and then I went and checked out Inflames. And then from them, I went on to Soil Work and Dark Tranquility and At The Gates and everything else. And that was, that was it then. Then I was going into say, the heavy side of metal. Yeah, Soil Work was massive for me. When I heard Soil Work, I was like, wow, this is amazing. It was like, yeah, so it's much fun. Yeah. Uh, I can think I Steve should... In, can I add one in, in in the opposite direction of this Go on then. conversation? So around sort of 2002, 2003, when I was became like proper underground elitist hardcore punk and I wouldn't listen to anything unless it was like you know just released on somebody's fucking their own label and I thought Poison the World were like MTV sellout wankers and all this kind of stuff my friend bought me Justin Timberlake's Justified for uh, for my birthday and I was like why the hell are you buying me this and she was like just go and listen to it and I went and listened to it and I was like, my word, this is excellent pop music. And then I went and bought Sugar Babes and that Christine Aguilera album that came out stripped at the time um, and all the kind of Neptune stuff. Uh, you know, Missy Elliott came out and I was just like, binned off all the fucking guitar music for a few years and just listened to all that because it is legitimately really fucking great, right? And then you came crawling back. Uh, <laughs> I think Steve should actually read out this question by Mark Baker purely because I think he'll have some really interesting opinions on it because, um, yeah, uh, sorry, not Mark Baker. We just did, did Mark David Baker. Savage. David yeah. Savage's uh, question is very interesting. Uh, following the dark days of thrash and death being very tired in the mid nineties, when a lot of bands open brackets, Metallica load stroke reload era, Anthrax sound of white noise, stomp, stomp 442 era tried to become more, quote unquote alternative and metal really took a back foot did pre did slipknot pretty much save heavy metal um no i don't think so uh, uh i think taking the two two of the biggest bands going through a bit of an identity crisis um at that period to me would not signal some sort of end of metal really um uh, I mean, if you just look, I've put a list down of bands who released records in between that first Slipknot album coming out and, you know, and the Black album. So we had Sepultura, Pantera, Machine Head, Corrosion, Conformity, Prong, Helmet, Deftones, Corn, At the Gates, In Flames, Emperor, Dimmu Borgia, Therapy, Biohazard, Fear Factory, Rollins Band, Down, System of a Down, Tool, Ramstein, Neurosis, Type of Negative, Paradise Lost. Static X, Meshuggah, Monster Magnet, Nine Inch Nails, Opeth, Misery Loves Company, Entombed, Children of Bodom, Cannibal Corpse, Obituary, Marilyn Manson, Carcass, Dub War, White Zombie, Life of Agony, Pitch Shifter, Ministry, Dark Throne, and Dream Theatre. I don't think that that is any sort of indication that metal was in a bad place, really. In fact, I think it's one of the, um, I think it's one of the big myths that should be debunked from people's rewriting of metal history. Um, Machine Ed were doing Brixton Academy on their first album, you know. Corn uh, were number one in the US Billboard chart twice in the period around before Slipknot, um, you know, <laughs> their debut album coming out. I think, look, I, I think death metal towards the end of 
of the, the decade maybe stagnated a little bit. But then I think Nile came along and made it interesting again. And Dying Fetus came along and Relapse Records came along and started doing really, really cool, interesting stuff. Um, yeah, it's one of the, one of the, the, I think, the major frustrations of mine particularly, that people concentrate on the behaviour of a group of bands who were struggling with how to remain relevant in the mainstream, um, whilst kind of overlooking what was good in metal. And metal did, you know, metal at the time it was they were saying how commercially unsuccessful it was but i mean type of negative was on the million copies of bloody kisses you know it's not in comparison to how it is now at least there was some kind of mm. like indication that i mean for one i think you know i'm not saying the scene isn't vibrant and exciting now but the discrepancy between big commercial metal bands and underground metal bands, they're much closer together than they used to be. Um, I don't think you can look at Metallica and Megadeth and Anthrax and, and say that they represented anything within the, the metal scene. I think they were, you know, they, they were very much seen as their heyday is behind them. And I kind of think that's not how it should be. I think you should always, one good thing about metal is that it always shows reverence and respect to its past, which a lot of other genres doesn't. But the 90s was a time when, you know, it was it was okay to go, you've had your moment, and now new bands are coming mm. through and doing something exciting and different and blah, blah, blah. And to think that we went from the Black Album and nothing to Slipknot or to Linkin Park or to, you know, Papa Roach or whatever, I, I just don't think that's true. Sepultura's Roots went to number four in the UK album chart. Number four. That's crazy. And plus, for what it's worth, loads of fucking great records. Um, Rich Hobson asks, what bands do you think are still great or return to form long after their peak? He's picked Sepultura and 36 Crazy Fist as two, two of his choices. What bands do you still, still think are smashing out of the park long after they're kind of were, were regarded as in their quote-unquote golden era? I'm going to say Corn. Oh, could pick loads. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say Corn and Judas Priest. Because um, Judas Priest is a good shout. I wasn't really too fussed on um, Corn in sort of the mid-career bit. I wasn't really fussed on Untitled. wasn't really fussed on Remember Who You Are, even though everyone seemed to go mad for that. But the records after that, Path of Totality, Paradigm Shift, Serenity of Suffering, The Nothing. I love all those records. Especially The Serenity of Suffering, which is awesome. You do love that. Yeah, Judas Priest, the last couple of records have been really good. I'm surprised. I, yeah, Priest, to be honest, I had a couple of ideas, but Priest is definitely better than any of mine ideas. That last album is up there with my favourite Priest records ever. I was convinced you were going to say Marilyn Manson and Ramstein. Oh, I mean, you can have them in there, but I just like all those records, so it's harder for me to, <laughs> it's harder yeah, for me to like say a return to form if I think that everything they did was good. So, did you think you didn't think everything Manson did was good, though? Did you? I just thought you, you specifically quite liked the current run of Pale Emperor and and um, Heaven Upside Down. I don't pretty much like everything is done in different ways. Sorry okay. to disappoint. Yeah, no, it's not disappointing. You're not disappointing me. Certainly not disappointing oh. Marilyn Manson. <laughs> That's not really the question either, is it? Because there's no point you said who have they dropped and then come up. I mean, it, you said that if they have dropped in, and then kind of come back to their to form, like Sepultura arguably might have done to a certain extent. But I think as said, a band that are still doing it past their peak. So you can peak, but still make good records in, in the interim and still be really good. I mean, I would have said a few months ago, I might have said Trivium, but it feels like Trivium now we are 
a lot of people are kind of saying this might be actually might be their peak. I think peak Trivium, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, I mean, Trivium's an interesting one because they they were a rare band where there was just so much hype around them and they were really picked to be like metal's chosen ones, which isn't really, like when Slipknot turned up, I'm sure there were some kind of people saying this, but I don't really know if you would say everyone was going, oh, Slipknot are the new, look at Slipknot, they're the new Metallica. Whereas Trivium got kind of saddled with that and they're never going to recapture that kind of hype again. I remember um, seeing them, I might have said this before, I remember seeing them support Slipknot and they were louder than Slipknot. Like someone had turned them up to be like super, super loud so that they'd come oh. on and play and everyone would be like, oh my gosh, Trivium. And then Slipknot came on and was like, this is really quiet now. It's really weird. Like it was at that time of like peak hype, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think Testament's a good shout. We mentioned Testament earlier. Yep. I think Testament's a good shout. But for me, personally, the, the A1 answer um, from especially- It's not A1. From- uh, it's not the one, no. Going from his commercial peak is anything Mike Patton does. Wow. Because Mike Patton really been somebody who has lived his career within the uh, the mainstream since about 1993, really. Um, but he has made some absolutely fucking phenomenal records. Even going back to the last couple of years, uh, he did a record with... Um, Jean-Claude Vanier, who's a French um, composer last year called Skullflower, which is absolutely brilliant. And um, yeah, he's, he's just, I think Mike Patton is always doing something really, really interesting. If you go back over the last 10 years to stuff like Loveage and Peeping Tom and all the way back to those Mr. Bungle albums and, um, you know, Handsome Boy Modeling School and the various different things that he's done, Dead Cross as well. He's just got a, maybe in terms of someone who you could broadly class as a metal musician, I think the most varied and interesting back catalogue of anyone who's ever played quote unquote metal music. Yeah, I don't think, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that. Um, We've got one more question. This is like at the end of the news where they just give you a fun little segment to to finish off with. Scott Satumple asks, what makes the perfect cup of tea? I don't really drink much tea to be honest. Well, then you're in absolutely no position to answer this question. I don't like tea unless And I shan't. I don't like tea unless it's like herbal tea, like mint tea or like ginger tea or something. Oh, we've let everyone down here. Yeah, I don't like regular tea. It's horrible. Good job I'm here, isn't it, guys? Coming to the rescue. I'm a big tea drinker. (laughs) Big time. Um, Well, you know, obviously, it's a very, very simple recipe for a perfect cup of tea. It's the cup. It's your bag. It's your boil your water. It's your pour your water in. It's your swirl it round a little bit. It's your squeeze it. It's your leave it to brew for a minute. Maybe. It sounded like a fucking Chaz and Dave song, mate. Yeah. And then you leave it to brew for a minute. <laughs> I'm not going to vibe a fucking Chaz and Dave song on your whim. Um, and then, yeah. And then you get the old tea bag out. Bit of milk. Stir him up. Oh, lovely brew, governor. That cockney enough for you. Sugar? Not for me. I like my milk. I like a little I like, bit of sugar if I have to have I like, one. I like my tea strong but milky. <laughs> strong but milky. <laughs> so strong tea, plenty of milk. That's how I have it. Wow. Well, that was that I was laughing at the idea of me explaining this. I can hear her giggling away in the back. 
<laughs> it took you almost as long to explain that as it did for me to tell you that story about the nightmare spirit. Yeah, but mine will live longer in the memory, Eleanor. So <laughs> 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 fucking hell if Let's you want to read about the nightmare up. spirit just google it there's a good atlantic feature about it i read all about it well, we've definitely talked enough about the nightmare spirit let's wrap it up there uh thank you guys that was a fun debate i think that might be that might be the longest podcast we've done but for good reason um we'll be back next week with a more regular edition of the podcast and we'll be back with another hall of fame entry very soon uh, in the meantime keep being safe out there everybody keep looking after each other keep supporting each other uh, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. Metal will see us through. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. See you later.